When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Bridge Over Troubled Water. And today's theme is pirates. Walt Disney said, There is more treasure in books than in all the pirates' loot on Treasure Island. And here are a few bits of pirate trivia. Pirates didn't actually wear eye patches because of a missing eye, but rather because they were keeping one eye ready to see in the dark when they had to adjust quickly below deck. That's all a bit less swashbuckling than you might hope. And there is no historical evidence for any pirate having ever owned a pet parrot. And only one pirate, William Kidd, is known to have ever buried any treasure. Lordy, next we'll be hearing that Captain Hook didn't actually exist. It's a, a building we moved into a couple of years, well, a year and a half ago. That's today's guest, Johnny Walker. When pirate John Lafitte saw that the governor of Louisiana had offered $500 for his successful capture, he put up flyers offering $1,500 for the capture of the Louisiana governor. The word buccaneer comes from the word buchan, which is a wooden frame used to cook meat over a fire. And this buchan was popular with early pirates in the Caribbean, leading to the word buccaneer. And talking of pirates and the Caribbean, the most expensive film ever to have been made is the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie. I've, I've heard of your, your days running a bar in Gillingham at the age of 16. Hold on a minute, how do you know about this? You've done better research on me. Johnny Walker made his name in the 1960s with pirate station Radio Caroline before moving to BBC Radio One in 1969. After a clash with his BBC boss about the Bay City Rollers, he moved to San Francisco in 1976. He talks in his autobiography about how whilst there, he struggled financially at times to the point where he even had to resort to sleeping with his then five-year-old son in his car. He was back again at Radio 1 by the early 80s, followed by a stint presenting Drive Time on Radio 2 until 2006. In 2003, he began treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and went on to be given the all-clear. Nearly two decades later, in 2019, it was announced he had a heart condition, from which he is also thankfully fully recovered. Nowadays, he presents Sounds of the 70s on Sunday afternoons on BBC Radio 2, as well as hosting The Rock Show. 
Oh, by the way, I do just want to mention before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, we recorded this uh, a couple of days after I'd had surgery. And I just want to mention it. I'm fine now, by the way. But the general anaesthetic had taken its toll a bit. So um, you probably won't notice. But I was a bit more dopey than normal. Even than normal, you might be thinking. Um, And I do mention it in our conversation. So let's just get that out of the way. Um, Anyway, back to today. Johnny and I talked about pirate radio, dreams, cars, music, the BBC, seasickness, soulmates, being stoned, being fired, rehab, romance, illness, health and finding your voice. But I started by asking him about his Dorset home, which is where he was talking to me from. We're surrounded by farms and we've got a little garden there and the other side of the fence is usually cows grazing. So it's very rural. So that's quite a shift if you think about your life. Did you ever think you'd end up sitting in a rural converted barn behaving yourself? (laughs) Uh, No, I didn't. (laughs) But it's worked out very well. It's future proof because there's no stairs. Yeah, I was thinking about, I mean, I'm 53, so a little way to go before I need to worry about stairs. But um, the house I live in in London has got many stairs. And it never occurred to me when I bought it in my early 30s that that would ever be a thing. And now I'm like, why did I put my bedroom on the very top floor of this house? Well, there you go. You've got a long time before you have to worry about that. <laughs> That's true. My dad is uh, is 79. Uh, my mum's in her 80s. They live down in Gillingham. And um, even they still have stairs, but a bit like they're both, I might say, more than up for the job of getting up and down them. And did That's you, because um, do you broadcast now from there or do you still make the schlep up and down to London? I do a live show about once a month from London. And the rest of the time, I've got a little den down the end of the corridor. And I record the show there. And it's kind of weird because I just record what we call the links, the talking bit between the records. So I'm introducing and talking about records I don't actually hear. And then I send the audio file of my links to the producer and then they put the records in and build it that way. So it's kind of a weird thing to do, but I've got used to it. And I guess you know, I mean, all the music that you're playing, it, you, you're hearing it in your head when you're doing the links. So it's uh, it's not as if you're talking about tracks that you don't know. Or although I suppose no. actually on your book show, there are, are you pre-recording that as well? Yeah, I do that the same way. So that has got new stuff on it, right? So there will be tracks on that that you, that you aren't familiar with. Yeah, but I do, I what's called top and tail. In other words, I listen to the beginning of the track, maybe all of the track and certainly the end of it. But what happens when I do the 70s one, I try and, from my memory, recall how a song ends. But sometimes when I hear the show on the radio, I think I come in very loud at the end of a record and it's got a very quiet ending and um, it doesn't sound quite right. It's much better to do it live. Yeah, for sure. And that's the buzz, isn't it, doing it live? So it must be very different... I mean, it's lovely to know your voices there and the BBC love you enough because I don't think they're probably letting many people do it this way round. So they're obviously dying to have your voice on air. But the kick of when you think about your Radio Caroline days in the beginning and moving to sort of recording in a Dorset um, alcove, that's quite, that's quite a move. <laughs> well, the wonderful thing about the pirate years 
was that you learned all about radio because you're on a ship, starting with the generator providing electricity, that powered the studios, and then also the transmitters. And then the signal went up to very tall mast uh, to the aerial and sort of beamed it out. Um, and actually, having a transmitter on water sends a signal at a much further distance. So we would go into Holland and Belgium and Germany and France, uh, as well as coming into the UK. But you were there with the whole process, from being in the studio to the transmitter to the antenna, everything. It was a great way to learn about radio. Is it like the Richard Curtis film? Is it like pirate radio? Or was that not a realistic <laughs> depiction of what life was actually like? That was not a realistic depiction at all. <laughs> uh, we went, there was a, a rule that you weren't allowed to have any women on board. Uh, we had Dutch food cooked by a couple of Dutch cooks who were also always rowing and throwing pots and pans at each other. Uh, and the captain was very strict. The captain was the boss. So it was absolutely the total opposite as that portrayed in uh, Rock the Boat. It's kind of, I always thought, I mean, I, I wasn't, not that I want to make you feel old, I wasn't alive in those days, but my birth name is Caroline. So I was always fascinated by Radio Caroline. I was born shortly after it was shut down. But in terms of the idea of being stuck on a kind of boat broadcasting, it's almost like an early version of a reality show because I can't imagine that that was the easiest life when you were I presume the easiest nicest bit was when you were on air yeah and the thing is we would do one week doing our own show mine was nine to midnight and then the second week we would sit in for somebody who'd gone on leave so then the second week I'd do nine to twelve in the morning and then nine to twelve at night so a lot of your time was spent on the radio and all the time you were broadcasting and the signal was going out everything was great and at nighttime, you could see the lights of the shore. There was Clacton not very far away. That was very brightly lit. Uh, but the worst time was when we went off the air. If we had a technical fault and the ship was not broadcasting, you could feel the difference in the energy. And then it just became like you're sitting on a rusty old hulk in the North Sea going around the anchor. Um, and then it was pretty awful. But all the time you're on air, the energy was just fantastic. And was it in terms of you getting into broadcasting because you'd you'd been a car salesman and then had to toss up between that and DJing, right? How did how did that sort of early bit of your career go? Well, um, the actual transition kind of will answer your question that I believe might be coming at the end, a sort of significant moment in life, which was a little similar to your Joan Rivers moment. Uh, I was doing two things. I was a car salesman during the week. And then at weekends, I was going to a racing driver school in Norfolk, training and learning how to become a racing driver, which I had big ambitions for. Uh, and then I was also DJing in clubs and pubs and ballrooms around Birmingham. And that was definitely affected my daytime job. I was half asleep when I got to work. I was sometimes late. And eventually, the manager of the garage said to me, one man cannot serve two masters. I will give you two weeks to decide whether you're going to be a proper car salesman or you're going to continue with this disc jockey nonsense. And I said, well, I don't need two weeks. Thanks very much. Um, I'll give you the answer now. I'll be a disc jockey. Thanks. And he said, you're crazy. You're throwing away a great career in the motor trade. In 15 years time, you could be a manager, which meant nothing to me at the age of 21. 
and there was all this fantastic music going on. The BBC weren't playing it, so Ronan O'Reilly decided the only way to do this is to be outside international waters and start a radio station on a ship, which everybody thought he was mad, but um, it worked out really well. And they were great times. I wouldn't trade them for anything. And what was it like in terms of, so having the resources to be doing that behind the scenes, so living the life that you were, and then finding your voice as quite a young man kind of on the airwaves, did you did things transition quite quickly at that point in terms of you knowing what it was you wanted to say and how it was you wanted to be? Because I'm always quite in awe of people who were out there getting their voice heard when they were young. It's taken me a long time to be confident enough in what I might want to say to wish for a bigger audience to hear it. How was that for you? There were strange things that happened because after answering that ultimatum, I then said, do you want me to work a week's notice? He said, no, you can go now. Give me the keys to your car. And my parents went ballistic. Uh, and my dad said, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm going to hitchhike around the world. Or I'm going to be a pirate radio DJ. And I had to persuade him to lend me his car that Saturday evening to go and do a DJ gig. And during the evening, someone came up to me and said, had I seen the article in the Daily Mirror about a new pirate station called Radio England? And I said, yeah, it sounds really good. He said, you should apply for a job. And I said, well, from the article, it would seem they're all going to be American DJs. No, he said, they're going to want a few Brits. Uh, You should apply for a job. So I did. I rang the mirror on Monday, found out where the advance party was, which is the Hilton Hotel, uh, rung them up, and they said, send us a tape. So I made a tape up, and then instead of posting it, I thought, well, I'm doing nothing. I'll take my tape to them. So I got on a train to London and went to the Hilton, went to Suite 1017, knocked on the door and said, here I am. I spoke to you yesterday. I'm here with my tape. And they said, well, where have you come from? I said, Birmingham. How far is that? They said. I said, a thousand miles. (laughs) (laughs) They'd They'd only just arrived. They hadn't got a clue. So I think my sort of uh, in my my sort of uh, uh, I've forgotten the word, but um, having the courage to go down there, having the courage first to walk out of my job, and then having the wherewithal to go down there and present the tape in person, I think helped swing it. So I was out of work for one day, and by Tuesday afternoon, I was a pirate radio DJ. And you know the strange thing is. No one ever throughout my life has ever contacted me, uh, run me up or met me outside the beep. The person who said I was the one who suggested that you should go and get a job on a pirate ship. And you would think they would. They completely changed my life. But they've never, ever got in touch, which leads me to think the only thing it could have been is it was an angel who went in and made that suggestion because he was right. They did want a few British DJs along with the American ones. And to, answer, to get around to answering your question, the nice thing was they wanted DJs with no experience that they could mould into their way of broadcasting. And the top DJ, Ronna Quinn, said, Johnny, never use plurals. Never say, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, don't remind your listeners that they're one of thousands or millions. Just talk to one person. Just say, hello, how are you? And that was a lesson that really stuck with me and that I've sort of followed ever since. And if I get letters from people saying, 
I really feel that you're doing the show just for me. I think, yeah, I've, um, that's exactly what I want them to think. That's such interesting advice. I know I do stuff with Colin Murray sometimes, and I know he talks about that, is that you're addressing one person and having that conversation. And I know with what I do in stand-up, if you actually will have a live conversation with the audience, that's when you have a zinger. And if you're just doing sort of pre-scripted stuff, they kind of pick up on it. But when you go from, I love the fact you had that courage of your conviction as a young man and somehow had the wherewithal to just know with the bit between your teeth this is what I'm doing but it's one thing to go down there and tenaciously with an element of bullshit about geography get the job but then how did you feel when you got the job and actually had to start doing it were you did you at any point think I really don't know what I'm doing I'm going to be found out (laughs) Uh, I was incredibly nervous obviously I want to ask you about your first night of (laughs) stand-up Well, I was but, shit. Um, That's a quick story. I thought I'd be great. I was shit and I persevered anyway. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. It's the only way you can learn, really, is by doing it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's really what happened on the radio. The thing was, though, after having got the job, there was then quite a few months while the ship was being prepared because it wasn't quite ready. And uh, when we got out to the ship, uh, they'd ignored all the advice of somebody who knew about Pirate Radio, who'd been on Radio Caroline. The most important thing was hang huge tractor tires on chains all the length of the side of the ship. So when the tender boat that brings you to and from the shore would come out, they could come up against the ship without any damage. Well, they didn't do that. So the seas were very rough. The tender boat, uh, the captain of the tender, uh, was very frightened of getting too close to the ship because it was bashing great dents in his ship, his boat, and we had to leap. And it was quite high up. So we had to time the crest of the wave and then leap across this gap, knowing if we sort of fell down between the two ships, we'd be definitely, we'd be a goner. And then they took us down and showed us the studio. And then they showed us the living accommodation, which was an empty hold with sleeping bags on the floor. So it was really, really tough on that first ship. I only stayed there a few months and then I went to Radio Caroline, which is very different. And what was different about Radio Caroline? Because I guess that's the fame, that's the one that, well, certainly people my age all think about. So what was the difference? Well, on the way from Texas, where they put the ship together to the North Sea, they stopped at various ports because the aerial fell down and they had all sorts of problems. And then they hired all sorts of uh, crew, none of whom spoke any English. The ship never seemed to accept the fact we're running a 24-hour radio station here. So I was doing midnight to six, a six-hour shift uh, all night, and then a three-hour news shift on two radio stations in the morning. And there was nobody up during the night. And the distance from the studio to where the mess room was to go and get some food, a bit of toast or something like that, it was too far for me to get there and back during the space of one record. So I was incredibly hungry. If I wanted to have any food, I had to wake up during the day when I should have been sleeping. Uh, whereas on Radio Caroline, the whole thing was used to a 24-hour radio station. There was always crew around. You could come out the studio and the mess room was right there. We had a big cupboard full. We lived on cornflakes and toast. And uh, <laughs> it was a much more comfortable ship. And it was, it was very small. 
they used to roll and, and about in the storms, but um, it was a gorgeous ship. She had a heart, a real, she had so much soul, that ship. She was fantastic. Did you ever get, um, I emcee quite a bit on the Tattersall Castle on the Thames, which is no Radio Caroline, but it is a very good comedy club. And I, I, when I'm on there for three or four hours, by the end, I feel quite sick. I'm guessing uh, you didn't have a sort of seasickness problem or pirate radio might not have been for you. Uh, Stuart Henry famously started his career with Radio Scotland and he was sick the entire time. So they allowed him to record his programmes on shore. Um, I wasn't ship. I wasn't sorry. I wasn't sick on the actual Caroline ship, but on the journey to and from the ship, you could get seriously ill. It was about an hour and a half, and often the seas were very rough, and and uh, that became worse after August '67 when we couldn't be serviced from England. We had to have a ship to Holland. So going across the North Sea in a Force Ten gale uh, all night long being sick the entire time was not an experience I would like to go through again. And then having to be perky on air, not being able to say, I feel sick as a dog and don't really want to be here. You just wanted to die. I used to pray for a sky hook, just hang this boat on a hook for half an hour, (laughs) halfway through to give us a break. But yeah, no, sometimes you did. You got back on the ship and you'd have to go straight on air, feeling like death warmed up. At least people couldn't so, um, see you. At least it wasn't like nowadays where they're actually... Do you do much where people nowadays when you're broadcasting where they insist on... I guess not if you're pre-recording links, but where they insist on having a feed and where the visuals are there as well. Radio and, and vision seem to be mixed now. Radio 2 have refurbished their studios and fitted a load of cameras in there. And the idea they, they can constantly record what's going on in the studio and then do some video clips for, for Twitter and the like. Uh, I don't really like that. I think radio should be radio. It's funny, isn't it? Because you do it. It is a very different form. And I always think occasionally when I guest on radio and then they say, oh, you know, we just take some pictures. I'm like, oh, Christ, I'm in my pyjamas. No one said no one said I was going to have to do this. Is there um, one of the things that a lot of comedians talk about? And you asked me, you know, why I'm in this hotel room in Stratford-upon-Avon. There's a lot of, it's actually very solitary. So people feel that we're really communicating with them, which we are. But you're going from a standing start with no one sort of whipping you up and there's no sort of team going, well, this is how it's going to be. I know know you have producers and so on. But having to go from naught to 60 and then suddenly be the voice that your listeners want to hear. Does it feel like a kind of solitary experience to you? or Or do you feel that connection with the people you're you're broadcasting to. Well, what you're talking about is doing shows and traveling. And that is, that can be a very solitary experience because there you are in a theater, you do your show. They want to do the meet and greet afterwards, which is like another show of meeting people in the foyer and they want to take selfies and have autographs and all that sort of thing. So you're surrounded by people uh, giving off loads of energy and then you get back to your hotel and you're completely on your own. So that is a very solitary experience. But in doing radio on the pirate ships, the lovely thing about it was there was no producers. There was no executives. There was no managers. There's nobody telling what to do. We had complete individual responsibility as to how we did the show and, and what we said. And uh, by and large, um, occasionally you get memos from Caroline House that they'd be annoyed with something you'd said. But um, by and large, we sort of 
we knew what we had to do and we sort of stuck to it. We, it was lovely having being awarded that freedom to be able to do radio uh, and, and to do it well and try and keep within the borders of what's acceptable and what isn't. And do you think you've ever had that feeling again? Was that quite unique, kind of bossless and determining your own parameters? It was unique. And so all the pirates that came on shore and went to the beginnings of Radio 1, Micah Hearn, who is a Liverpool DJ on Radio Caroline, he got fired after about five hours, I think, because he was given a producer and the producer started telling him what to do. And Mike just couldn't deal with it. And they just parted company. Yeah, I mean, when I first joined the BBC, there's producer there with a clipboard and a stopwatch uh, and completely inhibits your freedom to connect with an audience. And also you knew they had a thing in broadcasting house called the ring main, which went all around every office. So every office could tune into every BBC uh, station. And you knew there was people listening all the way through the BBC, um, which put tremendous pressure on you. Uh, and you were being told what to do by well-meaning middle-aged producers who lived in Croydon or Bromley, who really didn't know anything about the music that we were playing. And that became very frustrating. And is, I think that's definitely still the case. And I know we don't want to um, slag off the hand that feeds you, but these are my words, not yours. But having worked, I've only very briefly worked with and for the BBC when I used to work for UK TV, which is which um, is jointly owned by the BBC and, and now other people from then. And I used to do various bits and pieces over there on the telly side. And I just, it just didn't suit me. And when I was at MTV, I nearly worked for Trevor Dam. Um, they were setting up a sort of music TV element of the BBC. And I was really interested in the idea but compared to the culture at MTV, I just thought there's no way I will cope with this. And it was actually the sort of HR process of trying to hire me. I thought, if this is what it's like, count me out. I, I can't be asked. And I can imagine the disparity between the voice you have and the presence you are and that kind of organisation. I know you I know you have been fired by them in the past or at least parted company and then come back. But is that a tension that exists? Is it one you're willing to talk about, given they're paying your for your nice bar and endorse it? Well, I mean, things are very different now. Radio 2 is very different to the beginnings of Radio 1. I mean, these people are producing Gardener's World and light entertainment programmes. I mean, it's hard for you to imagine and younger people to imagine what the radio scene was like in those early days um, before Pirate Radio came along and forced the BBC to change. You just had Radio 4, which is called the Home Service, Radio 3 Classical, and the Light Programme, which was a mix of straight middle-aged music, uh, game shows, Mrs. Dale's Diary. Um, it, was just, it was just a complete mishmash of stuff. So these people suddenly were supposed to be trendy producers on a trendy radio station, uh, BBC, uh, all of the press were saying, auntie raises her hemline and goes trendy. And of course, <laughs> uh, it didn't really work that well in, in, in the beginning. And, you know, still the BBC's, the, the, the big drive at the moment is to attract younger listeners and viewers. And my view has always been young people never listen to the BBC. They'd much rather do something else. And now, of course, you've got music streaming services you can listen to. People start getting, you know, using the BBC when they get a bit older. 
and it's ever been that way. I think it's some um, Arthur Smith has a brilliant line that I've seen him do on stage where he does some material about Radio 4 and he says, and it's always younger audiences at live comedy. And he says, you know, um, I don't know if anyone here listens to Radio 4. And then there's always a ghostly silence. And he says, don't worry, you will. And I think that's, <laughs> that sums up the sort of transition <laughs> into radio. And I've certainly got massively into the audio form as I've got older. I always have the radio on now and I, I, I never really used to. Namaste, I also think there's a kind of misnomer in, well, first of all, there's a big gap between broadcasting executives and the people who actually front the shows and then the audiences and what they want to hear. And I, and I, it was ever thus, and I see it so often in the TV world and the gap between the actual creatives and that connection and then people who are signing off on things and making decisions from behind a desk. But I also think there's a, there's a, slight misunderstanding sometimes about the difference between the demographics who are listening or watching and who might be presenting. And I think sometimes executives seem to think, well, people, listeners want someone who's just exactly like them. And I don't think that's the case. I think listeners want someone they can relate to, but they don't need to be the same age as them or like them. What what do you think? Well, the big change is when I started in Pirate Radio, um, radio, certainly in America and with pirate radio, it was all about people who were skilled at doing radio. And it was just a, um, an audio medium, and that was it. But over the years now, um, the only way to get a radio show is to be on TV and become a TV celebrity, mm-hmm. and then they might give you a radio show. So because you're someone on TV doesn't mean to say you're going to be good on radio. And so the, it, it's not so much they hire people who are like their listeners, who can connect with them. They hire celebrities. And, of course, the big change in afternoon radio that's just happened is the ending of the Steve Wright show. Mm-hmm. And I can understand a radio station thinking, would they use this word refresh? <laughs> We're going to refresh the affternoon, Steve. And he said, we're going to make some changes. That's what he was told. And then uh, about a week later, he said, well, what are, what are these changes? Normally, management doesn't get involved in what goes into a show. What are these changes? Well, actually, we're going to change the presenter, Steve. So he's very philosophical about it. He said, I had a really good run. And radio stations, obviously, they can't really have their presenters getting older and older and older. So they're trying to attract listeners who are younger so difficult decisions do have to be made but uh, I really missed Steve Wright in the afternoon he did a fantastic show I used to listen to Steve Wright when I I went to Salisbury College and I would drive from Salisbury College back to uh, Shaftesbury so it was you know 40 minute drive each way every day and he was the soundtrack to my journey home every afternoon and I've on Radio 1 and I've always taken great comfort from hearing the show still on Radio 2 so I was really really sad when that ended it made me feel very nostalgic um and I think sometimes these changes are made for changes sake and it's not necessarily what listeners want to want to hear but you're somehow weathering the storms of well I do want to go back to the being fired so you've um when I thought about themes of things that were relevant in your life um illness came up and surviving illness and getting fired so you parted company with uh, radio one 
back in the early, the first time that you, it, it was a Bay City Rollers controversy that uh, that you got in the middle of then. Yeah, that was 1976. And I'd done, uh, I started with the BBC in 69. And I did uh, bits and pieces for a while. And then they gave me a daily show Monday to Friday for one hour, following Tony Blackburn at nine o'clock and preceding Jimmy Young at 10. I think they were just wanted to try me out, see if I was okay doing what they called, for some reason, they called them strip shows, shows that ran Monday to Friday. Um, and then I used to play album tracks on my show because a lot of really good music was coming out on albums that didn't necessarily be released as a single. And Derek Chimery, the boss, said to me in 1976, he said, well, your contract's coming up. We want you to do another two years on the lunchtime show but no more album tracks. So I said, what you mean is more Bay City Rollers. If they're in the charts, yes. I said, well, how about a show at the weekend for a while where I've got musical freedom? Don't be so ridiculous, he said. Nobody gives up a Monday to Friday show for a show at the weekend. He said, two weeks on the lunchtime show, now no, uh, no album tracks or nothing. So I said, well, it better be nothing then. So I wasn't fired. It was my decision to leave. And I went off to America and worked in San Francisco for a while. And what was it like then? The because um, that must have been quite an interesting time. I know you're, you've been no stranger to partying over the years. Is that fair to say? <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> so I imagine um, I obviously d didn't go to San Francisco in those years, but I have spent quite a bit of time uh, there and um, on the West Coast since. So what, what was that like as a youngish man who just uh, decided to part company with quite a traditional employer in the UK, finding yourself over there? Well, before I got my steady job with the station in San Francisco, I visited radio stations in Los Angeles. And there was a DJ there called Tom O'Hare. And I went round to his uh, apartment in the afternoon. He said, I'd love you to do a guest slot on uh, KLOS. No, KMET it was, KMET Los Angeles. And he said, but you've got to go on stoned. He said, rolling another spliff and having another Jack Daniels. And I said, um, I mean, there's two ways you can go when you smoke a spliff. You can either start laughing and become very outrageous or you can become a bit um uh a bit inward really a bit introvert uh and i said no i really don't want to go on stone tom uh, i said does everybody go on stoned on the radio in la he said yeah find me somebody who doesn't so you couldn't have been more different to the bbc and i think he thought well get this guy stoned he's come from the bbc with all that strictness uh, and this should be really interesting to see what happens. So um, I was going through a very kind of spiritual time at, uh, back then. And I remember I went on and I did the show. Okay, and then I decided to read an excerpt from Kyle Gibran's The Prophet, uh, which I did. <laughs> and I was stoned and it was very difficult to do stone. And then I came walking out the studio and there's kind of dead silence around the rest of the radio station. So um, that blew that one. But um, then I worked on a station called uh, KSAN in San Francisco. Uh, and that was a really great station. So it was coming from a very strict conformist BBC to radio where most of the jocks did get stoned. There was a wonderful guy called Richard Gossett who used to drink beers and alcohol 
his band in radio studios in America. He used to drink beers and roll joints all the way through his show, which was evening, six till 10. And it didn't really matter because I think his audience were getting stoned with him. And then sometimes the great thing about K-Stan, it was complete musical freedom. You had in the studio a huge wall of shelving full of albums just outside the studio, the main music library, hundreds and hundreds of albums. And he would sit there and he'd put a record on, he'd be rolling a joint, and then he'd suddenly think of the next song that he wanted to play. So he'd run to the wall of the albums, trying to find the album that he wanted, uh, finally get it, pull it out. Meantime, the track on the air was just coming to an end. And he knew he didn't have time to queue up this next record. So he used to sit there and sort of shrug and say, oh, well, there you go. So the track would end, there'd be about a three or four second gap, and then the next track would come on. So um, it was very relaxed radio, and it was enormous fun to do. What was your life like off, off air at that time then? So things must have been very different uh, when you'd been you know, living in the UK and working for the BBC. What was it like actually living in San Francisco at that time? Well, I worked on a station which was in the downtown area, uh, and then my first uh, place I lived was in Berkeley, in, uh, on the other side of the Bay Bridge. It's an enormous bridge. It takes you about 10 minutes to drive across it. Because I discovered it was very hard to get an apartment in San Francisco, and I had two children. So I lived in Berkeley, which was kind of very laid back and very Californian and very sort of Joni Mitchell. Um, and then I moved back into the city. I got an apartment in uh, what they call the Mission District of San Francisco, which is where most of these sort of Mexican uh, people live. So um, that's a very lively part of town. I remember a policeman saying to me once, when you cross Market Street going into the Mission area, he said, lock your car doors, which I never did. I never had a moment's problem living in the Mission District. It was just really lively. Uh, and Friday night, the main street was taken over by the low ride. The cars would go slowly up and down the street. They used to have to divert the buses. Uh, and that was fantastic. The girls would be walking along what I should call a sidewalk. And the guys were driving these cars with sort of chromium plated chains for a steering wheel, blasting out music. And every so often they'd stop. And then they'd press buttons and the car would sort of jump up and down. They had the most enormous batteries in there and hydraulics and things, um, the low riders. Uh, so that was very colourful. Sounds like a cross between a really West Side time. Story and Greece. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> and you were married, so you, because you, you're um, the lovely Tiggy, who you are now married to and, and listeners know because she makes appearances on your show and you had the, um, the lovely podcast, Con, Con Conscious, I can't even speak. I better be careful how I say that. Consciously coupling, uh, nearly said something else, um, which which obviously started from the point of you two having found each other. Um, on your case, third time, uh, third time lucky. But you'd got so you married quite young. So when you were living a fairly sort of renegade life, you were married with kids. Uh, yes, I was, um, and. Uh, Unfortunately, that first marriage that produced the two children broke up in San Francisco. And I decided we had a long talk about it. And I said, well, we're a bit in an equal situation in a way. 
I said, I can't afford to support you and the two children. I wasn't earning very much. I'd been fired from KSAM by this time. And I was doing the odd DJ gigs in punk clubs and things. Um, so I said, if we split all the money I've got, which I think was about $12,000, and I said, I'll take Sam and you look after Beth, which is what we did. And it seems people get very surprised when I tell them that, but it seemed the fairest and natural thing to do. So there was I going off to do DJ gigs in the evening. Sometimes I could find I shared a flat with about four other people. Sometimes people would be staying in and they'd look after Sam. Other times everybody was going out, so I'd have to take Sam with me. And I remember I used to do gigs in a place called the Geary Temple. Um, and the Clash played there and uh, all sorts of people. And I'd be up in the sort of balcony over the stage with my DJ playing records between the bands. And then underneath on the floor in a sleeping bag, there would be Sam sleeping. And then I finished about one, at one o'clock in the morning. And then I'd have to make sure I got him to school for eight o'clock. Um, and that was, that was quite difficult. That was. I bet you got loads of attention on the school run, though. I think blokes always get a lot of attention when they're on the school <laughs> run. And back then, come on, that must have been, you must have been no problem trying to recruit for wife number two. Uh, no, it wasn't like, <laughs> it, was, it wasn't like that at all, really. Um, and there was, no, there was no wife number two uh, until much, much later. And that, that marriage, unfortunately, only lasted about six months. So wife what, number three yeah, sorry. much more, wife number three much more successful. <laughs> a good bet. I can vouch for that. And is it, what, so what, that must have been joking as I was about it, but being a single dad of a boy, especially then, I mean, they really weren't dads raising their children. So how, how, how was that, the disparity between what you were doing by night and, and how your actual life was, dadding Sam? Um, well, I think my, my wife, Frances, thought it would be really bad for Sam, that he, he wouldn't be getting proper meals. Um, you know, there's me working at nighttime a great deal, uh, and she thought he would turn out very badly. But it, he's, I, I think he looked at my life and thought, right, that's what's not to do. I will do the opposite of what he's done. So he lives in Sydney now. He's married with two children. And uh, he's, he's having a really good life. And um, there were times once we had a journey. Uh, I moved from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. And we were driving across the country. I was in an old 1960s Chevrolet estate car. And it was piled high with all my DJ gear records and and my stuff in the back. And there's just room for Sam and I in the front bench seat. And I pulled off to a scenic area and parked the car. And we got out of the car and played Frisbee with each other. And there was beautiful views around North Carolina, I think. And the wind was blowing and we were playing Frisbee. And I said, well, we better get back on the road now, Sam. And I got back in the car and he sat there and he just looked at me. He said, this has been the greatest day of my life, Dad. And it was such a simple thing we were doing, but he just loved it so much. So he was very good at dealing with adventure and change. And uh, I think it stood him in good stead, really. What a lovely story. I feel like that's almost your namaste motherfucking moment, or certainly certainly one of Sam's. Are you, so you're still close to Sam. Do you see him often if he's over in Australia? 
I don't, unfortunately. Tiggy also has, uh, she has a brother in Sydney, and she used to go before we met uh, regularly, at least every two years. And we kept that up for a while after we married. But um, somehow it's at the, the journey at my old age of 77. Uh, it's not so much the going, it's the coming back mm -hmm. that seems to lock, lock me for six. It's a long, long way. So we don't go quite as often as, as we'd like to. But we chat on FaceTime and um, we keep in touch as much as we can. But uh, I miss him a lot. The world is small now, but it is still my, my daughter ended up in lockdown. We were stuck in different countries and the lockdowns of our two countries kept not coinciding. And um, that was only, I think, eight months. I didn't see her and it felt hellish. So I, I, I feel your pain. Are you close? And your daughter is a bit closer to home. Yeah, she's uh, down in Portland in Dorset. Oh, beautiful. So, yeah. So it's a lot easier to go and see her or we meet halfway and have a lunch somewhere. And uh, she's doing fine. And did you, we've mentioned Tiggy quite a bit. And uh, you met, when you met Tiggy, you'd been going through a bit of a, was that, a, well, tell me about meeting Tiggy and what that meant to you, meeting your, your third and final wife at, at the stage in your life when you met her. Well, funny enough, I, I had a bit of a cocaine problem. And I went to... I wasn't going to mention it, but it was all over the tabloids not long before you met Tiggy. So I'm glad you went there before I was forced to. <laughs> uh, anyway, to sort that out, I went to rehab and I came across Crossroads on Antigua. And it was started by Eric Clapton. And Eric Clapton had had a home on Antigua for a number of years, really loved the island. And uh, Antigua was a bit of a staging post for drugs. And there was tremendous drug problems on the island amongst the locals. So he decided he'd open up this rehab center. He called it Crossroads. He regularly still does, I think, have concerts where he raises money to run Crossroads. He sells his guitars to fund it. And the idea is people can come from uh, Europe and the USA, but for the local people on Antigua, it's absolutely free. And that's sort of his gift back to the island. So anyway, I come back from Antigua, uh, not drinking, no drugs, uh, and met Tiggy through an old friend I was renewing my friendship with, a fellow a songwriter called Gordon Haskell. Who I know um, a bit, actually, from my teenage years. He hung around with a lot of the musicians I knew in Dorset, so I know Gordon a bit. <laughs> he was a character. and She and uh, uh, Tiggy and, and Gordon were having a bit of a summer fling together. And the, I was told about Gordon when his manager brought the album in, his new album into radio, and he mentioned his girlfriend. And the moment he mentioned his girlfriend, all my psychic antennas start going off big time. I've learned to sort of recognize the intuitive feelings over the years. And I thought, I have to meet this person. I just, I want to renew my friendship with Gordon. To do that, nicking his woman is not the best way, but I have to meet this person. <laughs> I knew I had to. So eventually uh, I did. And uh, we went to the Soho Club. It was her club in, in, uh, in Greek Street in Soho, the Union Club. And I went there with Gordon for a drink. And he said, Tiggy might join us later. And it seemed an absolute age before suddenly she was standing there, uh, full of laughter, full of energy. And it took 30 seconds to completely fall in love with her. And the overriding thing I felt was 
I know you. There's so many questions I don't have to ask you. I know who you are. And it was the same feeling for her. And it's given us both total faith in reincarnation because we must have been together before in some way for us to know each other so well. So um, there I was, this clean machine, very spiritual. I was the perfect man for Tiggs. I kind of, this is what I've been looking for. My grandmother, who's just died, told me, you should go with an older man to you, be much better for you. And then three months later, the older man turns up. Uh, and so she got me at my best. <laughs> gradually, sort of, I started to live a bit more normally and drink a bit of wine and stuff like that. And she said, you conned me. She said, you really conned me when we first met. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's just the way it was. She had this lovely cottage in Ashmore that we go to at the weekend. She'd done very well for herself to you. She worked very hard. She was very clever at being a, a, a commercials producer. Uh, and she was brilliant at her job. She made lots of profit for the production company. And um, she'd done well for herself. She did a lot of uh, commercials for McDonald's. And she said, really, I often thought I should have McDonald's arches over my cottage in Nashville because <laughs> they paid for it. Uh, and we go there at the weekend, and I've completely forgotten why I got into that story. Well, you were talking about how you met her, and and that, by the way, if you could see me, we're doing this with our cameras off, you would see I had tears in my eyes at that story because you hear about these things, but they're quite. It's quite rare. It's quite rare to speak to somebody who's had that experience when they met their person, and so you had this beautiful lyrical romance uh, and by the way how was Gordon about you just stealing his girlfriend and saying look this is my soulmate we've been together in a former life she's mine uh, I thought um, I must do the gentlemanly thing here it off immediately and he became a bit of a gooseberry on that that evening but he previously said to Tiggy he said I feel I'm going to be a catalyst for you to meet someone who's more the right person for you. And after about a week after Tiggy and I met, Gordon said to Tiggy, I don't think it's working out between us, is it? So Tiggy said, no, not really. Let's just put it down to a summer fling. And from that moment, I was free to, to be with Tiggy. And um, so Gordon was very good about it. Um, I did play his record, How Wonderful You Are, on the radio, not long after 9-11. And that was the other thing about meeting Tiggy. We were having long conversations that evening, the three of us, about how the West really need to rediscover its spiritual side and really realize what was important in life. And it was the simple things. Uh, and it was love and it was friendship. And it was being good to each other. And Tiggy said, something needs to happen to wake everybody up. And that was in the evening. And then the very next morning, planes went into the Twin Towers. So that was a very profound time to meet her, and uh, it was quite incredible, the whole thing. Anyway, Gordon had made this new album, and one of the songs was How Wonderful You Are, and I thought it was a very simple healing song with just the message that coincided with what Tiggy was talking about, and I started playing it on my Radio 2 show. Michael Parkinson was listening in a taxi on the way to the BBC, phoned his producer and said, I want to play that record by Gordon Haskell. Radio 2 got behind it, and he had a huge hit. I remember he suddenly was right in the limelight. Yeah, and he very nearly made number one. He was up against Robbie Williams and 
Nicole Kidman, I think it was, who did a duet. So he was a, a number two Christmas hit. And he got a million pound publishing contract. He bought himself a new house. He bought his mama house. Uh, and he was set fair. So um, the, the Evening Standard rung me up and asked me about me playing this, launching this hit song, How Wonderful You Are. Um, and uh, I said, well, I'm not sure what I should say. And Tiggy said, well, just tell him. Seeing as you nicked his bird, it seemed the least you could do to play his new record. You beat me to it. That's karma. <laughs> and you know what? If someone said million quid, you know, Christmas number two or a, or a girlfriend, I think most people would go with what Gordon had. So I think you were both winners in the end of that story. But the bit that uh, people will probably know is no sooner did you have that beautiful love story, got married, it was all the Hollywood movie stuff. And then you fucked it up by getting very ill. Yeah, that was a, a that was a cruel twist of fate. That mm. was, and I think whatever relationship Tiggy and I had in a previous existence, I must have helped her to some degree. Because if there's karmic debts being repaid, my word is she helped me. And uh, we came back from a honeymoon in India, and I was just I was constantly tired on the honeymoon. I often had to go to bed early, and she'd have to sit in this restaurant being serenaded by this Indian uh, guitarist and singer doing his version of Tequila Sunrise. She said, I never want to hear that song I again. bet. <laughs> it wasn't the ideal honeymoon for her. And I came back and got myself checked out. It was discovered I had a tumour in my bowel, which they thought was bowel cancer, and then it later transpired. It was uh, a cancer called non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I remember I went for this um, colonoscopy at this clinic in uh, Marylebone. I think he was at the nearby Waitrose shopping. And he said to me, I can't really get the camera as far as I need to. There's a tumor there and I'm pretty sure it's cancer. So I called Tiggy up and I said, um, I think you better come, come up to the clinic. So she was at checkout. So Tiggy says to her, so, well, what do I do with all this food? Uh, do I just leave it there and run to the clinic? And she said, well, she thought to herself, well, whatever's happened, we're going to need to eat. So I'll finish the checkout and then I'll go up and see what's happening with Johnny. And I remember coming out of the clinic, she was outside and I just said to her, Tisa, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. I really thought this is not what you deserve. You know, just a few months into our marriage, that you're going to have to deal with this. Um, so that was a tough time. And uh, I was on very strong chemotherapy, which after a while, after my fourth chemo, uh, I remember I had three chemotherapies and they did a scan and the oncologist said, um, the scan's reduced in size, but I recommend you have the rest of them. And each chemotherapy session put me into Bart's hospital. Um, my body just found it very hard to deal with. And Tiggy said, don't give him any more, you'll kill him. And I said, well, just for once, I think I'd better follow their advice and do what I'm told. So chemo number four caused me such enormous uh, constipation. I was completely blocked up. And um, eventually, one morning, I was at her cottage in Ashmore, and I was crawling around the floor. I couldn't stand up. The pain was so bad. And I remember saying to Tiggy, I said, call the fucking ambulance, Tiggs. Uh, this is serious. Dial 999 now, now, now. 
unfortunately, that was the time when ambulances would come faster now, then than they do now. Um, so Tiggy relates the story, so I called the fucking ambulance. <laughs> 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 and off I went to hospital about 10 in the morning, and it wasn't until 7 o'clock at night they'd worked out what to do with me. Uh, there's a man we call Superhero, who was a general surgeon, a fellow called Nick Carty. And he said about four o'clock in the afternoon, finally they, they found a, war, a bed for me in a ward. And he said, get this guy, get him to have a scan now. And for some reason they didn't. I don't know whether they thought I was so weak and so ill. All my intestines had burst open is what happened. And uh, they didn't send me down. They thought it might finish me off. So he came by at seven o'clock. He said, is he is scanned yet? And they said, no. They said, get him down there now. Ring up the scan department. And the guy was just about to pack up and leave. Anyway, restarted the machine. I had the scan. And then about 11 o'clock at night, I had, had an emergency operation. So that was touch and go for a bit. I was in intensive care for a while. So I took it right to the edge. But uh, I managed to get through that. Did you feel, do you remember thinking, this is it, I'm not going to come back from this? Um, you kind of deal with what's going on at the time. Uh, I remember there was this lovely nurse, very caring nurse, and uh, I was holding her hand at times during the night, and I was on a lot of morphine, I think. Tiggy came in the next day to visit, and the nurse was still there, and I said, I said uh, I'm going off to... Um, a South Sea island with a nurse. She's been wonderful. She's been holding my hand all night. And <laughs> the nurse turned out to be a, a, a boy, a fella. So <laughs> There's a plot twist in Johnny Walker's life. <laughs> yeah. But he was lovely. He actually said, um, he said, I need, he, we were together, Tiggy and I, with this nurse, and he said, I need to pop out and get something. Pop is the word you hear an awful lot in the NHS. I'm just going to pop this in your arm. I'm just going to pop. Anyway, so he just wanted to leave us to be together. And I remember I sidled onto the edge of this narrow bed that I was on. I had all these wires and tubes connecting me and stuff. And I said, come on, Tiggs, get up here. And she climbed up on the bed. And uh, we had a hug and just held each other. It was the most intense feeling of closeness and love. I've never experienced in all my life. It was quite, quite incredible. And um, without that illness and that operation, I wouldn't have experienced that. It was amazing. And Tiggy was just fantastic. I don't, I'm not sure if I'd been on my own, if I could have uh, got through it all, but um, she was amazing. And you got a chance to repay that amazingness because it was 10 years later, wasn't it, that she got breast cancer? Yeah, equal opportunity marriage. Exactly. Yeah. I feel it's very, very fair and equitable. And yes. she and she found that so she, she diagnosed herself with breast cancer because this and she's got a beautiful book which she showed me when I met her unplanned journey and we'll put a link to that in the show notes, which is an incredibly honest look at what happened. But she so she self-diagnosed herself with breast cancer. Yeah, she went to the hospital and they found a lump and um, she went in and had a lumpectomy and she called up Bella West, a photographer we know, and she said, I really wish I'd taken a photograph of Johnny because he went down to eight stone and you would never have believed the person you see now was the person who was then. 
and I wish I'd taken photographs of it just to have a record of, of what happened. So she said, would you consider doing photographs of me? And Bella said, yeah. And then Bella came up with the idea, why don't we turn it into a book? So amazingly, Salisbury District Hospital gave Bella West permission to come in and photograph absolutely everything. She was in the operating room, taking pictures of the operation. Uh, she was there for the chemotherapy. A quite amazing record of, um, of Tiggy's journey through cancer treatment. And the book is wonderful. And Tiggy's a wonderful writer, and she really puts her personality into her writing. And the things she wrote in that book, uh, you, her sense of humor just comes shining through. So I think it was good for her that I'd been through chemo so I knew a bit about it, so, um, so I could help her quite a lot. So I did repay the love she gave, love and support she gave me at that time. And I guess you're not thinking of it that way around. As a younger woman marrying an older man, you think, well, there will be some arse wiping and stuff that comes into this. But I guess you weren't banking on that with your hot, beautiful, vivacious younger wife, that you were the one who would end up changing tubes and, and helping her. Because chemotherapy doesn't make people particularly nice and relaxed, does it? No, it, it, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't bring out the best uh, in anyone. I love the way you use expressions like arse wiping. <laughs> <laughs> Say what you really mean, Kelly. <laughs> Listen, I took a long time breaking out of my corporate shackles so I could say what I mean. And did you, um, if there's, you talked about that moment where you hugged Tiggy when you'd sort of just come back from the brink of wondering whether you'd make it. And was there a moment with Tiggy's illness where you knew it was going to be okay? There was a lot of tender moments. I remember when I got cancer and I went in the shower one day and a lump of hair fell out. As soon as I got dressed, I went straight into town, into Shaftesbury, went to the barbers and said, give us a number two, shave it all off. Uh, because that sensation of big clumps of hair coming out is quite a profound experience. Mm -hmm. It really is. And I said to Tiggs, and I bought a, a razor in advance, and I said to Tiggs, if your hair starts to fall out, I said, I'll shave it off for you. I said, just be bold. And um, in fact, a, advice from her brother, um, Graham in Sydney, who's a hairdresser. And you know the way hairdressers and their clients talk. So he was very experienced in, in women having cancer. And he said, own your own baldness. Don't wear wigs. Just be bold. Anyway, the moment I sort of shaved Tiggy's head, uh, that was a very profound moment. And she looked beautiful. I said, forget Sinead O'Connor. Your, the shape of your head is absolutely beautiful. And she did. She was so beautiful with no hair. Um, but, of course, it's, all, it's grown back now. So um, she got through it okay. And then you threw another curveball because you two seemed to tag team uh, traumatic illness. Then you had a heart problem, heart condition in 2019. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd already had a couple of stents, and then I was out walking our dog, Darcy, and Tiggs uh, was somewhere else. And I remember feeling, I need to get home, I need to get home. I just felt really weird. And uh, I managed to get home, um, went to bed, and Tiggy was back by that time. I said, can you call 111 or whatever it is, find out which painkiller is best for chest pains? And of course, the moment you mentioned chest pains, one, 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 the whole 
NHS system kicks into action. And a paramedic came around in the car and came up and he said, I think you've had a heart attack. So we need to get you to hospital. So um, I eventually had a triple bypass in Southampton. So yeah, I've, um, I've paid a lot of tax over the years, but I've had a lot back from the NHS. Yeah, for sure. Well, if bad things come in threes, I reckon you've had your three illnesses now as a couple, and this should just be plain sailing now forevermore. So uh, <laughs> I wish you both very, very good health. Thank you, Karen. But your marriage is in good health, which I think counts for a hell of a lot and puts you in a tiny minority of people. What is, um, what is the harder role, having gone through both, the patient or the carer? Um, interesting question. Uh, Tiggy said she'd rather be with a patient. She found the caring role quite difficult. Um, <clears throat> I think, I, in a way, I think it is harder to be the carer because you have to find the right balance of being supportive, uh, of dealing with a person who is going through a really tough time. Uh, you can't say, oh, everything's going to be fine. You're going to get better. You're going to sail through this because that's not the reality. There's always a possibility somebody might die that you're looking after. So it's a very difficult role. Um, and so I think being, being the carer is the more difficult one. Well, we'll certainly put a link to Carers UK um, because I think people, you're right, they say, don't they, when people suffer from depression, it's the people who are around them that sometimes end up with the really really long-term challenges and um, I was chatting to somebody at a gig the other night the night before I went in and had um, surgery and he said that his dad suffered from uh, physical you know had had bouts with cancer and heart conditions and god knows what for 20 years but his mum had a severe depression for six months and he said caring for his mum for six months with depression was harder than the 20 years going for his dad. So we'll certainly put a link to that. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick as your namaste, motherfucking, life-changing moment? Well, um, I think it probably, well, in terms of career, in terms of life-changing, it would be the moment of the ultimatum from the garage manager and my transition from being a DJ, uh, being a car salesman and potential Formula One world champion, of course, uh, to becoming a DJ. That was quite a moment. And the other one really was um, the birth of my children. And they were both born at home, even the first one, which normally is advised against. And we'd read an article, I read an article in the Daily Mirror about Frederick Le a French gynecologist who pioneered this whole different way of women giving birth where it would be very much in the dark and not complete darkness but certainly darker than uh, bright lights in a in a hospital ward or theater um, also very quiet very gentle and the umbilical cord shouldn't be cut until it starts pulsing so in other words you let the baby's lungs take over getting oxygen uh, and so then the cord stops pulsing and then, then you cut the cord. So I was in the room with my wife being a witness to all of this uh, and seeing this new birth arrive, the arrival of a, of a, of a baby into the world. Was, that was a namaste moment, most definitely. And again, with my daughter, Beth, when she was born. What's your favourite joke? Uh, I've struggled with that. I've actually been on the internet looking for Bob Monkhouse jokes, which are all great. They are I so good. 
Yeah, they are. He was fantastic. I don't remember jokes, Callie. I'm ever so sorry. I'm going to have to disappoint you on that one. I just, people don't tell jokes anymore. Um, You've obviously been to my shows, no jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's why they talk about their lives, stand-ups, and they take the sort of mickey out of their, their lives and their own experiences. Every joke really is at the expense of somebody. So it's very hard in this politically correct world to, to tell jokes. And if somebody does tell me a joke, which is very rare these days, I've, com- I've thought an hour later I've completely forgotten it. So I'm sorry. Don't I'm be sorry. I, I often end my, um, my after-dinner speeches when I reveal my uh, unexpected midlife life change. I, I quote, I sent a quota, late, great British comedian, Bob Monkhouse. Everybody laughed when I said I wanted to be a comedian. Well, they're not laughing now. Yes. So I've given you a joke <laughs> to, to fill for your lack of a joke. If you had one bit of life advice to give to anybody listening, what would it be? Well, it comes from a TV show called Kung Fu that was years ago starring David Carradine when he was playing this monk in America. And he and another guy had been accused of, of stealing horses, which is an offence that you could be hung for. So they're in this cart being taken into town to face trial the next day, possibly to be hanged, probably to be hanged. And David Carradine as Kung Fu is just in the back of the car, playing his flute with not a care in the world. And the guy said to him, how on earth can you be so calm sitting there playing your flute? We're going to be hung tomorrow. And he just turned around and said, no amount of worrying ever changed tomorrow. So that's something that stuck with me. And the other thing that I like is, especially if you're stuck in some awful traffic jam, I am always in the right place at the right time. And that's a way of doing, you know, getting rid of the panic of, oh, my God, I'm late. Oh, my God, what's happening here? Just decide I'm always in the right place at the right time. And um, this was given to me when I did a course called Silver Mind Control. And the the guy said, um, whenever you turn on the TV or radio, just stop and watch or listen to whatever's coming out, because maybe you're meant to hear that. That was Johnny Walker. So that's it for this week. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. And do take a look at the show notes. We always have the good stuff in there. And we've got links to Johnny's stuff and Tiggy's brilliant book and also to Carers UK, which is the charity of which both Johnny and Tiggy are patrons. So uh, if you care for anyone, if you're loving, if you're altruistic, have a look at Carers UK. It may help you and it'll help you help other people. Anyway, enough of all that. Uh, please do while you're feeling kind and loving and altruistic remember to rate review and recommend our show and we will be back in your feed next thursday as always when i'll be talking to comedian finn taylor i take all the arguments in good faith i think there must be elements of truth on both sides namaste motherfuckers was written and presented by me callie beaton and produced by mike hansen and karusha dami for pod people productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers.
Emmanuel.